I was, I was just thinking um, while we're singing that we're singing um, dangerous words, actually. Um, do, do I really want to be, do I really want to be consumed by him? You know, um, it reminds me when Jesus said, if unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. And a bunch of people left after that. They thought he's asking for too much. Um, and do I really want the Holy Spirit's presence to be more fully known to me? Because I know that in scriptures, whenever God shows up and people notice it, something always happens. Um, there's people that walk away. Um, there's people that gets shaken up. Um, and so if I really sing, God, consume me, um, there's a part of me that's yes, because there is just absolutely nothing. There's no hope outside of that for me. Um, and I know that, and I even feel it sometimes, and so I sing it. And there's another part of me that goes, if he does that, there's, there's going to be a lot of dying that's going to happen because there's a lot of things that have to die. And, um, man, that's, it's hard. It's hard to have him um, to take those things um, and put them to death. And... Um, but we just sang it. So, uh, I think actually, and it didn't connect at first, but I think we'll see a little bit of that um, just briefly here in our in our in Matthew, because um, John the Baptist has to go through a bit of that here in this passage. But we're in the book of Matthew. We took a break last week, and we are stepping back into it. We'll be in chapter three. Um, thus far, we've been looking at Matthew as a connecting book between the Old Testament. And all the things that God is preparing and doing and moving and working in the New Testament when he's going to bring in the New Covenant. And Matthew is, becomes this perfect linking book to help us understand what God has been doing. And, and they're just two different things, but God has been moving through both of those things and bringing it up from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Where, um, and it's also we saw the book was designed um, to be a teaching tool to instruct us a bit about what it looks like to walk in this new kingdom that uh, Jesus was bringing about as he, as the Messiah and the Anointed One, came. And then lastly, we saw that it's an apologetic book written to the Jewish nation to say, Jesus says, this is who I am, and guess what? He's exactly who he said he was, and I'm going to show you. And so we've actually been pretty meticulous. Actually, Matthew's been meticulous about showing step by step, this is exactly what it was said. This is exactly, and so he's repeated these scriptures over and over again as he's been um, laying out this whole thing um, for us, um, even with John uh, Tusco, when he started unpacking those feasts and showing how what Jesus came and did and, and, um, and what John the Baptist was doing, the Baptist was all tied in. This is just all fits. Just, you can just see God's hand all over it. And so it reminds us that when Jesus comes and says, here, this is who I am, Matthew is trying to show us exactly who he was, he is. His regular showed us that the Old Testament prophesied of him and that Christ himself fulfilled what needed to happen for this grand change and this coming of the kingdom to happen. Um, as I said two weeks ago, John walked us through the first part of chapter 3, which is the ministry of John the Baptist, um, and recalling that he was the last Old Testament prophet, again, another link between the Old Testament and New Testament, and he was calling the people out to the wilderness Remember, the wilderness was a place where when they left Egypt, uh, they were supposed to have a work done in the wilderness before and in the promised land. It didn't quite get done. Um, and so John the Baptist calls people back out in the wilderness for this baptism of repentance um, as he talked about that. 
was baptism and repentance to prepare people to receive the one who could actually give this new covenant and this new birth and this salvation. Um, so now we're coming here to chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. And this is really the very, very beginning of Jesus' public ministry here in this passage. So let me read these verses. Um, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan. By the way, it's, that wasn't a short walk. Where Jesus went was probably 60 miles from where John the Baptist was baptizing, where Jesus had been. So there's intention here. There's a time to start it. He's leaving what he was doing, going somewhere else, to be baptized by John. And John would have prevented him, and he said, I need to be baptized by you, and why are you coming to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And so John consented. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And just be aware of, right after this happens, remember what happens? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And there's going to be a continuing in the wilderness here. We have three parts here, verses 13 through 15. We see the obedience of Jesus' as son. Verse 16, we're going to see the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon him. And verse 17, we're going to hear the voice of the Father. So I just want to walk through each of those, those sections here. So we have Jesus going out in the wilderness. Interesting picture. Um, I think going out in order to accomplish and fulfill what the nation of Israel had not done, to fulfill what they had not accomplished out in the desert themselves. And he goes out there to be baptized. Interesting, it's just like everybody else. Everybody else, all these crowds going out there to be baptized. And um, Jesus wasn't known yet. So Jesus shows up, and he's just one of the crowd. Um, it's not like, oh, there's Jesus. And Matt, John the Baptist points it out later. There's indications that even John the Baptist is a little confused until God actually showed um, who he was. And we're not sure what's going on there, but some of the other Gospels show that. But I think it's interesting that Jesus arrives for this incredibly pivotal event that begins everything, and nobody knows who he is. I'm not, not a person. Um, there's even questions whatever, whether even anybody sees what happens here. There was, uh, for sure John the Baptist noticed it, um, but at least when he arrives, um, did you ever, we've all felt this way at some point. We thought we were important for something at some event, and we've arrived, and nobody noticed. And it's like, I should have, I, somebody should have noticed me here. Um, it's my birthday party, you know, or whatever it is, you know. Um, and Jesus arrives, and this is the King of Kings. It's the, the, the Messiah who is born. Everything all these chapters have talked about um, has arrived on the scene, and he's just another person in the crowd who needed repentance, is what the people think. Everybody there was there because there was sin, and they're coming for repentance. So Jesus shows up um, in that way, just one of the crowd. I wonder... Wonder what that was like. As a matter of fact, I think it was actually the beginning of loneliness for him. Um, the beginning of experience of loneliness that we have all felt down deep. Um, and, and he actually experienced it all through these years, and it's in its greatest um, moment on the cross. But he comes to be baptized, and it's a baptism not like we do back here, it's a baptism of repentance we talked about. I am desperate and needy, and have sinned, and I wanted to prepare myself for an answer to that. And so um, John asks him a question, 
And it's the question we all ask when we read it. Why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized in a baptism of repentance? What is going on here? This is not the person who should be doing this. And John confesses, I like this in his chapter, it says John confesses his own need. He recognizes his own sin, his own need to be baptized for repentance. Um, And he recognizes that Jesus does not need that. He knows it. And so he's going, why are you doing this? I mean, as a matter of fact, John is going, this does not, there's nothing right about, this doesn't feel right at all. Uh, for me to even do this is to, to put myself in a place over you to say, you need this, and I'm going to enter you in this place. And so John the Baptist is confused, and, and so are we. Um, why does he do it? Interesting, just in the previous section, John, John didn't touch on it, but John the Baptist speaks to the religious leaders who were watching this going on, thinking they didn't need anything. And John calls them to show the works of repentance, the fruits of repentance. And they were refusing it. And here's the one who actually is full of the fruit of all that God would bring for us, everything that you can possibly imagine, and he's actually stepping into the water. Um, so here's these guys who are eventually going to try him and condemn him and have no business whatsoever. They're just, he calls them whitewashed tombs later on. And they're watching this man, who they didn't know who he is yet, and he's going into the water just like a, just another sinner, one of those people that need that. So Jesus enters into this place. So again, why? Why is it happening here? Um, it's got to be important because all four Gospels record it. Um, and so I will give a couple ideas, but the truth is, it doesn't tell us why. He says, I'm going to come to fulfill all righteousness. And you can read a bunch of commentaries. Everybody's going to say something different. And a bunch of people repeat each other, but there's no reason for it because it doesn't tell us here. Um, they'll give all sorts of different reasons, and um, we're not altogether sure. But I'm going to give you, propose a few ideas. Um, but like I said, it doesn't exactly tell us why. As a matter of fact, I think this passage, the primary focus is supposed to be in the second half of this chapter, the, this, the speaking of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the speaking of the Father. But yet, we got this part here where Jesus says to him, let all righteousness be fulfilled. If you recall the earlier chapters, when it used the word fulfilled, it was always pointing back to something else. So over and over again, Matthew so far says, this was done to fulfill, and it laid out something in the Old Testament, something that was promised, something that was told in advance that would happen. Um, and here we don't get, there's, there actually, I've, you could scour the Old Testament, you're not going to find a place where it says, you, Jesus had to be baptized. The Messiah was going to be baptized. It doesn't tell us that. Um, but something had to happen here that's completed in the baptism of Jesus. Um, like I said, in the Old Testament, in Matthew so far, this words to fulfill were part of a, a formula that always points back to the Old Testament. It establishes, um, it's going to establish for us that Jesus is truly the Messiah. So far, it's what Matthew's done every time. He said, this is fulfilled, and what he tells him it's done establishes that Jesus is actually the one who can change us. He's the anointed one, the Messiah. So there's something about Jesus being baptized here that's going to tell us that he's, he's the one. He's the promised Messiah um, that came on our behalf. Um, I think part of it is just, like I said, I think it was to fulfill what the nation of Israel had not accomplished when they were in the desert. But I think there's two other things here, and I'll just share them. Um, one, I think he does it to identify with us in our sin. Interesting, the priests in the Old Testament um, would go into the Holy of Holies on behalf of the people um, to atone for their sin. And so um, they would go in as representatives of the people on their behalf. And so um, 
I think in many ways here, when Jesus steps in, um, he's identifying as, as in that same way, to identify with our sin and with us. Isaiah 53, verse 12, it says, He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Jesus is standing around the river, numbered with all the transgressors, um, to go into that same place that we went in. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Um, and I'm not, I, I don't want to say anything heretical, um, but um, we knew that Jesus had no sin, never sinned. And yet there's some very real way that he bore our sin um, to such a degree that he actually could pay the price for it. And I don't know what that looks like, um, but it wasn't just this nice idea up here. There was some way that Jesus actually embodied the fullness of our sin on himself. And so the entering into the baptism of repentance was on behalf of all the people whose sin I actually will embody. I need to do this for them because we don't truly do it ourselves. And so perhaps there's something of that there. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, and he was being born in the likeness of men. And so if Jesus is born in the likeness of men, in baptism of repentance, he's showing solidarity with us. Um, it's one thing to have somebody just way up there that we cannot touch that does something for us, and it's just distant and disconnected. But Jesus connects with us. Um, that's why we love the Gospels, because I can, I can see and feel and sense to touch him, and I can see that he experiences what I experience, and I can actually think, I can believe this one. I can follow this one. It's not just this idea out here. And so Jesus um, shows solidarity with his people in our desperate need for repentance, and he doesn't shrink away from it. Um, He just steps into it um, for us. A second possibility, and this is, uh, I don't think I'm stretching it, but um, a second possibility is, um, remember I said the priests would go into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Scriptures talk about Jesus being what? Our high priest, right? Our priest. And it's possible that Jesus here was fulfilling the requirements for entering into the priesthood here in this setting. Um, it's, it's significant that John the Baptist is the one doing the baptizing, not just somebody else. John the Baptist is the last Old Testament prophet. He's the connecting point. But guess what, what group he came from? He came from the priests. Remember, his father was, was, was in the, doing the, the, the work of the priesthood when he received the, the words that he, John the Baptist is born. So John the Baptist is part of the priestly group as a prophet out in the desert, calling people back to that place. Um, he, listen to this, Hebrews chapter 4, beginning with verse 14. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, that is Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confessions, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but he's one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So clearly declaring Jesus is our priest, and he's is a priest that can identify with us, that can, can speak and move and act on our behalf, because he's experienced what we do. Every high priest, verse 5, um, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but rather he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Sounds like this other passage, doesn't it? 
um, when God speaks out of heaven, you're my son. This is my son. And it says here, Christ also did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but rather he was appointed by him, that's the father, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Um, Verse 8 of, I think I'm in chapter 5 here. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God to be a high priest. Interesting passage. If you go to the book of Exodus, guess what had happened to become a, high pri- become a priest? You had to go to a priest and they washed you. It tells us, Exodus chapter 29, 4, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and you will wash them with water. It was one of the steps to entering into the priesthood. And it's interesting here that we have Jesus, who's God himself, and yet he takes on our solidarity, in, tempted in all ways like we. He bears our infirmities, um, and he, he humbles himself to be appointed in a way. It says here in Hebrews, appointed a priest on our behalf. And the picture of baptism here is, is part of that picture. As God chooses John the Baptist, this connecting point with the Old Testament, who has this priestly line, and he baptizes Jesus with water. And Jesus then goes out, he's our priest. And now guess what? Now he's God, but he's man, but he's on our behalf has been made the priest who can therefore win salvation for us, who can actually atone for our sins, as Hebrews says, once um, and for all. Is it possible that part of the mystery of Jesus' baptism and being anointed as a priest is that then he was able to be made to make atonement on our behalf? Interesting that um, God chose to submit himself to the order of things that he laid out. Um, and so Jesus did those things. He's obedient. Um, and, he, and he was obedient to the point of going in the River Jordan, which a king long time ago wouldn't do to get rid of leprosy. Remember that guy? I'm not going in that river. And Jesus goes into that river like just like everybody else um, as John Baptist baptized him. There's clearly a passing of the ministry from Jesus, um, from John the Baptist to Jesus here. Second section here is the anointing by the Holy Spirit. Um, just very briefly, it says here, um, if I could read it again. Um, it says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Jesus, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest um, on him. Um, he saw the Spirit descend and coming to rest on him. Interesting, this is um, that we have Jesus in the water, and now we have the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, um, it's not like this is the first time the Holy Spirit shows up for Jesus, and it's, it's, it's part of him. That's not what's going on here. Um, but there is a special anointing at that moment of the Spirit coming down on him and and, and being united with Jesus in this moment, in, in a particular and a special way. Um, go back to Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. It says this, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations, and he will not cry aloud or lift his voice or make it heard in the street. Interesting, it sounds like a dove. That picture, I'm not sure why he came down as a dove. Everybody speculates about that. Um, it makes a really cool symbol for Calvary chapels, which is cool. But um, why did he come as a dove? Um, 
I'm not altogether sure. There's some, you know, there's scriptures that talk about different things. Um, but later on, actually, I'll talk about the fact that he doesn't, um, a bruised reed, he doesn't break. Um, there's some images there. But um, here Jesus is in the water, and he obeys um, on our behalf. And when he comes up out of the water, uh, the Holy Spirit, which is part of the Trinity, part of united with Jesus, who's stepped into this world in the incarnation, and he comes down upon him, um, anointing him for what he was about to do. Um, just uh, as an aside, um, this, the New Testament makes it very clear that everything Jesus did, he did according to the will of the Father, and he did it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the minute we think, well, if I was Jesus, I could do everything, right? Uh, we forget Jesus humbled himself, and he released some things, and he decided, I am going to live the way I'm calling them to live. We're called to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And Jesus did the same thing. So the Holy Spirit here is very significant as it rests upon him and speaks even these words that we see here in Isaiah 42. Um, Puts the Spirit upon him for what purpose? To bring justice to the nations and his redemption. And he will not cry aloud even on the cross when he he did not speak his voice. Um, Isaiah 61, the verses that Jesus reads at the when he comes out of the desert and is going to start his actual um, very, very public ministry, Jesus reads these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release the captives, and he lays out, here's my ministry, here's what I'm going to do. And here we see this happening here in, um, in Matthew chapter 3 where um, the Spirit of God has rested upon him and anointed him for a purpose here. And um, I don't know, I think all of us sometimes think, is what I'm doing what I'm really supposed to be doing? Or what am I supposed to be doing? Or what does life look like? And Jesus had to, had to wrestle through all those same things. And so here, this moment, the Spirit comes along and says, this is it. This is the time I anointed you, and you are doing the thing you're supposed to do, and go out from that place. And so um, the Holy Spirit anoints him here. Remember that Isaiah 61 passage when he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and Jesus' words after that were, This has been fulfilled in your midst. Um, but it begins here in John cha- or Matthew chapter 3. And then lastly, I just want to comment on here the voice of the Father. Um, it says here, The Spirit came upon him. Um, uh, verse uh, 15, When Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom um, I am pleased. Interesting, it says, first of all, it says the heavens were opened. Um, You've got to go back hundreds of years to see this happening again. It has been a long time um, since the heavens had been opened. And every time the heavens get opened, it almost always precedes a voice from heaven. Um, God spoke in, in hearts and visions, but actually speaking his voice, you have to go back a long way. So God's speaking voice had not been heard for a long time, and here comes um, in a very significant way. The, the, word, um, the word heaven's open is actually the word for rent. It's not like a gentle clouds parting and the sun coming through all of a sudden, but Jesus looks and it's like it just it's torn open in a sense. Um, there's something powerful in that. Um, as the Spirit comes gently on him and anoints him, and then there's this rending of the heavens that Jesus sees with this, this voice of authority and power 
and everything he's looking for, and it speaks out of that place. Interesting, that happens later on, doesn't it? Um, the disciples are on top of a mountain, and the cloud comes down, and suddenly it's opened up, and there's a, there's a voice from heaven, and it shakes everybody up. And again, it says, points, points to Jesus again in that passage. Um, the question comes, one of the questions, just a curious question, is, so didn't everybody else hear this? You know, so right then and there, everybody, everybody follows Jesus, and um, we don't know. It, it, it says here in this passage, for ours, it says that Jesus saw the heaven opened, and Jesus saw the Spirit of God descending to coming to rest on him. And then it says, Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am pleased. Interesting, um, it speaks it in a third person. Isn't that, isn't that correct? This is my beloved, is that third person? Second, whatever it is. It's not like you are my beloved Son, and I am pleased with you, although I think Jesus heard that. But this is my beloved Son, which implies that somebody else heard it. Um, there's, in one of the other Gospels, it becomes pretty clear that John actually heard it, because the, the words change around in that passage. And so... John hears it, um, which sometimes begs the question that later on when he's in prison, he's going, remember, I heard this. I heard that you were the one. I'm, I'm starting to doubt that. Remind me. Um, because perhaps John did hear that, and he goes, this is it. And I think it actually was for John partly because um, this, I'll look at that in a minute, but this marks the end of John's ministry here. It basically, it marks the end of his life. Um, he needed to know this, this was it. Um, he needs something from God here as well. But this voice from heaven speaks. And what is it like to hear the one that you want to hear from most to say, ah, you are my, I, you are my boy. I am proud of you. I, um, I am pleased with you. Um, all of us know what it is to hear that the person that we want to hear that from, not hearing that from them, at least at some point probably. Um, and we think Jesus, I didn't need to hear that he's Jesus, you know. We don't understand the Trinity that is just bound up as one. And um, later on, what we're going to hear, Jesus going to be on the cross, and he's going to sing, he's going to go, Father, where are you? Where are you? Um, there's deep pain and loneliness in that there. And I think on the flip side of that, there's absolute incredible a rest that Jesus feels because the Father says, I'm pleased. And I think it gave him the strength and energy to step into the loneliness and the betrayal and all the things that were going to follow him in the next three years. It reminds him, the Father said, this is it. This is the right thing. And moving forward. And so Jesus hears these incredible words. Interesting. I've, um, I, I always wanted to hear those words from my dad. Um, Looking back, the majority of the time I got those words from my dad because I did the right things. And so he was pleased with me, and he would voice that. I appreciate the fact he'd voice it. But looking back, it was always because of something I did. Um, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. It's just him. And the Father says, I'm pleased, pleased. Um, I would just encourage you, that's God's voice for us as well. Um, Because what Jesus has done, that's his voice for all of us as well. Um, it has nothing to do with what we do or don't do. Um, he speaks those same words. As I said, for Jesus, it was a place of encouragement um, to remember who he was as he goes out into the desert. He's about to go into 40 days of incredible temptation, um, all sorts of reasons not to pursue his ministry, and he's going to remember those words and the strength that he gets from that. 
Perhaps he grabbed onto those in some hopefulness even on the cross. And as I said, for others, particularly for John the Baptist, um, that it, it's, it just encourages him that I've been on the right track. This, the right things are happening. This is how it's supposed to go. And I can deal with what happens down the road. Jesus' whole, as I said, his whole ministry is carried out according to the will of the Father. And so it is right that at the very beginning of that time, it should be inaugurated by the, the Father's voice. He should be the one saying, ready, set, go. You are right for this. You are ready to go. And launches him into that place. Psalm chapter 2, verses 78 says this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Um, interesting, Psalm 2 is a, a coronation psalm for the king, for the, the Davidic king, which we've seen in Matthew already. Jesus is the promised Davidic king who would rest on the throne forever. And here we have the same words that would have been um, spoken over the anointing of a king, and here the anointing of the king of kings. Um, interesting, verse 8 says of, of Psalm 2 says, I will make the nations your heritage, Psalm 2, verse 8, and the ends of the earth your possession. Pretty interesting. The next thing we're going to discover that Satan's going to go, I'll give you all this. And the anointing of him as the king of kings is already telling him, it's already yours. It's all yours already. You need to remember that. Psalm 42, verse 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. It's Jesus and the Father speaking over him. Um, this section of the baptism is huge. Um, it's just, okay, he went in, he got baptized, and off he goes, right? That's what I do. When I was 15 years old, I got baptized. I stood up there in the, the loft thing with the little curtain and the picture of the goofy river behind us on the wall and the little microphone there. I thought I was going to drop in the water and electrocute everybody that's standing there. And, and we had to recite a verse and baptize. And it was significant. It was. Um, but it's like I did, and I got done, and off we go. For Jesus, this is everything. This, this is the beginning of his, of his alignment with us and stepping into our place and our shoes, and the entire Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in one place saying, this something is about to happen, and it begins right here. It's huge. If you go to um, Luke 16, 16, it says, The law and the prophets were until John, that's John the Baptist. Since then, the good news of the kingdom, this new kingdom, is being preached. The law and prophets were until John the Baptist, but since then the new kingdom is being preached. There's something significant, cataclysmic that happens in this juncture. Luke chapter 3, verse 21, talking about the same passage. It's interesting. It says, when all the people were baptized, then Jesus also was baptized. Interesting um, statement that he puts in there. I don't think it means that Jesus is actually the last one and everybody else is in line going, it's all done, they close the little gate. Um, But it was the end of John the Baptist's work. Jesus was at the very end of it. And I, I wonder what that was like for John. This, this has nothing to do with this, but I wonder what it was like for John, the Baptist, to know it's done for me. And no, it doesn't end well for him. It just, it's just hurt. It's just hurt for him. And I think he needed to hear, this is the one, and I'm going to just trust in that. Um, but there had to be a definitive statement from the entire Trinity to say, this is the point when everything changes. And it's about to start. And that just opens up the rest of this gospel. What's going to happen? What's he going to do um, as he moves forward from this place? So I wrote on my notes back earlier this week, because I've been um, in this, sitting in a group from our church and going through this little potter's wheel event 
um, this week. So I have been from morning till late um, unavailable since Wednesday. And so Tuesday when I had a little chance, I was typing this and I wrote, how this impacts me? And I left a blank space because I figured I'll know something um, by the time we get here today. And I actually came in here like, what, 4, 4.15. And I looked at it and go, oh, it's still blank. I didn't put anything in there. Um, and I, I, um, I was thinking what came to mind um, the most um, and had a little bit to do with what we were talking about when we were singing those songs. Um, all this stuff that's talking about this, this new kingdom, um, all these years later, um, it's, still, it's just still going on. Um, Jesus is still moving and inaugurating his kingdom and calling people into it. And this huge event uh, marks that everything has changed. And we can either ignore it and just kind of go along um, with the world as it is um, or disbelieve it, or we, we enter into it. Um, we enter into that thing. What do you have for me in this kingdom? What's it going to do as I enter into that place? Um, it's here. It's begun. Um, and Jesus is right, actually the entire Trinity is right in the very center of it, bringing all of its power and all its presence into this place, into this coming kingdom. And my first thought came to me um, personally is, am I willing to lay everything down to be fully brought into that place of the kingdom, his work? Am I really willing to lay everything down? John the Baptist laid everything down in order to open that door. Jesus laid everything down in order to see inaugurated and fulfilled and, 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 and spread out. Um, and then we watched the disciples who sometimes wanted to, sometimes didn't, and eventually came to a place where they're saying, I'll lay down whatever you need me to lay down in order to participate in the work that you've promised. Um, interesting, Jesus says that we're going to have communion here. Um, Brian, you guys can come on up. Um, Jesus says, I will not eat or drink um, the fruit of this vine until I drink it with you fresh in the kingdom of God. There's lots of questions about what that means. Um, I tend to think that day is still coming. Um, then we'll actually be with him. Um, there's this already part of the kingdom, but it's not yet. Um, and we take the bread and the cup, and each time we take, we remind him that he has not finished working yet. And he's committed himself not to stop. Um, that One of the passages I was reading earlier went on to say, A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He... He, talking about Jesus, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his laws. He entered into that place and was anointed to a ministry and a calling. He said, I am not going to stop till it's all finished, everything taken care of. And today he calls us to enter into that work, calls us to lay whatever we have to lay down um, so that he can fully embrace us and bring us into And what I love about this, um, a bruised reed he will not break. Guess who that is? That's us. That's you and me. Um, or bruised and smudged and everything else. Um, and he takes us and he puts us to work and he guards over that as he carries it out. Let me pray for the bread and the cup. And then as we sing, um, encourage you, if you know the Lord, you can come up front here on the side and, and um, maybe there's a, a prayer of just laying it down or even saying, I don't know how to lay it down and asking him to do that work. Perhaps there's a prayer of just um, a prayer of faith saying, I'm trusting you to finish the work. Um, 
or a prayer of just um, thankfulness that he's still at work and has promised to do it, and the bread and the cup remind us that he takes things all the way and finishes it. Um, Whatever that may be, bring that to him as your act of worship. Where I'm thinking a little bit of what it was like, um, I guess, to be you and as John the Baptist, uh, an ending for John the Baptist. And yet a sense um, he did, he allowed himself to be broken. He laid down his life to carry out what you had called him to do. Um, For Jesus, as he enters into this next three years of um, difficulty in many, in most senses, and betrayal, um, thinning crowds, and finally a lonely cross. Um, Thank you, Lord, that you put everything out there. And you didn't shrink away from stepping into the ministry that was inaugurated here in this passage, but you um, you move forward for, for us and to bring us into that place and then include us in that story. And we give you thanks for it. Um, pursue us until you have our full heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah.